I'm Robin Mallory Pratt, and this is Transforming Luxury, a new podcast series from the business of fashion. Over six episodes, we're investigating how market disruption, new technology, and growing consumer scrutiny are driving transformative change in the $300 billion luxury goods market. In this episode, we're discussing how the definition of a luxury good has expanded dramatically in recent years to now include a host of disruptive new categories, from the luxury sneakerhead culture that dominated the past decade, to collectibles, curios, NFTs, and even mass-produced products capturing attention today. We're then addressing the rising demands that the luxury industry be accountable for representing the global cultures that it relies upon for both its profits and its creative inspiration in a way that serves the communities themselves and not the industry's shareholders, before learning how luxury's supply and production processes can be transformed to create tangible social good. To do that, I'm delighted to be joined by stylist Serena Akers, a 2021 Emmy Award winner for her work as the costume designer for Beyonce's Black is King visual album and the founder of Black Owned Everything. Designer Bethany Williams, crypto artist Ferocious, and kicking us off, Network's Aaron Levant. How have you seen luxury product evolve over the last five years and how varied is the product mix now that you would deem luxury? For sure, sneakers have become a luxury product, both by perception and number one by price point. For network have purchased and sold sneakers up to $45,000 for one pair of sneakers in the last few months. So, you know, that's obviously a extreme price point. So I think, you know, certain sneakers based on their scarcity or desirability have either entered the true luxury market or even eclipsed it on a price basis. Then we see other things coming in, whether that's brands like Bear Brick, from Japan, Metacom, if you're familiar with that, these kind of collectible plastic bears, I think have become a luxury item. I call them the kind of Fabergé egg for the street culture generation, these kind of home goods and collectible items that are scarce, even something like Supreme accessories that are made in extremely limited quantities that you know this consumer desires. It's ever-changing. And now, obviously, that conversation goes into a digital realm where there are things that are much more expensive than traditional luxury being sold as digital objects, NFT art, skins and video games, etc. So it's an ever-evolving world. And I also would kind of think art as well as blending into that, uh, whether you're talking something like Cause, who's selling lithographs or prints, you know, a non-traditional art buying market has now adapted buying art the same way they would think about buying Louis Vuitton as status symbols and pieces in their collection. Scarcity in the luxury industry used to be related to the materials involved in the production processes. And now it's related to the numbers that are produced intentionally by the manufacturer. What's your take on scarcity and its role in the market today and how significant it is in driving the commercial success of products? I don't think scarcity is a real thing in reality, meaning that I think it's mostly perceived scarcity. So whether it's luxury, whether it's Nike, whether it's Supreme or anyone else who's selling a product that has the feel to the consumer that's a must-have, the perception of the consumers that it's made in some type of limited quantity. Most brands do not stamp their products with a number like a lithograph where it says one of, you know, whatever, 500 anymore. It's the, the bottleneck around distribution that a brand like Supreme creates around, let's say, their 14 global retail flagships and their dot-com and their lack of wholesale and the ability for brands to channel their distribution through purely company-owned or direct-to-consumer distribution to create the perceived scarcity because, you know, in reality, a brand like Supreme is selling more 
volume than let's say a popular men's surf brand like Billabong or Volcom. I think whether it's a true luxury brand or a collectible or street culture brand, I think the masterfulness that you're seeing mostly right now is around marketing and creating this perceived scarcity. And Nike also has been a master of this. You know, from all this change, what do you believe is the most important thing to understand about these transitional times we live in? I think that the number one thing to understand is that something can happen globally almost instantaneously now, which with social, an idea, a product, a brand can go from being irrelevant to relevant, literally overnight, based on a moment, based on a product, based on something going viral, and the entire global consumer ecosystem can adapt an idea almost instantaneously and now buy it almost instantaneously. I think that is a a very difficult thing. And I think there's also a downside about that is something can fall out of favor very fast, right? So I think the ability for a brand to stay relevant over long periods of time and the fight to remain relevant, which means constantly staying in the pop culture zeitgeist, the consumer takes a lot to get their interest and, and maintain their interest. But when you get it, it can spike super fast. The biggest thing is speed. We've never seen speed like this. And I think the new consumer will go even faster and they'll understand things faster and adopt the trends faster. And this historical infrastructure of the fashion calendar or brand calendar, which is like show product in some type of runway presentation and then ship it months later, will be a dead idea within you know six months or a year. If you're not able to create that moment of energy and then immediately capitalize on it with sales, I think the consumer will lose interest and brands need to move at the speed the consumer moves. And I think that's never been more important than today. And I think the whole go-to-market calendar needs to get turned on its head to continue evolving with this consumer. Last episode, we heard from the senior critic at large of the Washington Post, Robin Gavan, about the need for luxury to do a better job at representing consumers. For years, the luxury world behind the scenes just was not particularly diverse. And so you tend to end up speaking in a very narrow way. And for all of the enthusiastic, everyone is welcome. I think we all know that when you arrive at the party, whether or not you really are welcome or they have to open the door to you. Indeed, relying on homogenized, typically white privileged employees having global cultural awareness in product development has led to some high-profile mistakes with clearly offensive items being produced by some of the industry's most established brands. To discuss how luxury can do a better job at engaging diverse creatives into their product development strategies, I spoke to Zarina Akers, the renowned stylist and costume designer, best known for her work with Beyonce Knowles Carter and notably designing the visual album Black is King. She's also the founder of Black Owned Everything, a platform and marketplace which initially started as an Instagram page and has since become a movement and a medium for creating meaningful and long-lasting participation between black business, community and excellence. You know, right now the industry is making good strides, you know, making positive strides. And I, I do think there's still a lot of more work to be done, especially in getting more people of color behind the scenes and at those boardrooms and at those tables and in those early conversations, especially in product development. I think that a lot of these mishaps with blackface being used and, and you know, these very offensive 
articles of clothing. You're like, it's just how did this make it past? You know how many approvals one design has to go through? You know how many people have to like see these things, you know, or like a commercial or, or, or you know, or, or an ad campaign? There's, it has to go through so many different channels. And if you don't have the right people and the right representation in the room, of course, you're going to get caught out there, you know, or if you're not listening to the voice, you know, and often that that is also the issue is that you're just you're just not listening to the voice of reason in the room. How do you think the luxury industry can authentically and respectfully engage black creatives to work within its ecosystem in a way that will drive lasting change rather than serve the existing system itself? I think it's starting with those real, like, analytical, hard number, hard fact positions first. Because I think what a lot of companies are doing right now is starting outward. The model, the, the outward shining appearance, or we used a black photographer. And it's like, sometimes you're not even using a good photographer. You're just using someone because they're black. And then it doesn't necessarily help their career or the publication or whatever. It's like, you mean to tell me that you can't do that amount of research? I think it just doesn't make very much sense to me, you know? And I think that people like Lindsay Wagner and Sandrine Charles, they have really created a space, even a, a directory of creatives, you know? And even if you haven't quite figured it out internally, there are so many external resources that now you have access to. What the industry tends to do is tokenize black people specifically. So there's that one photographer that has been validated and they just use that person over and over again. Or there's that one or two designers that maybe got the seal of approval from the CFDA, and then now they're everywhere. When like pages like Black on Everything show you, there's so much more that our community has to offer, you know. And there's so many. I mean, across so many different categories, you know, so many different types of creators. But again, I think it starts behind the scenes, you know. It starts in those very data-driven positions as well. And seeing black and brown people, not just as a marketing tool, but as a space and resource in which the company can also benefit from internally. Can you tell me about how the interest in your platform grew and your experience at Black Owned Everything to date? I think a lot of it really stemmed from the murder of George Floyd. You know, at the time, the community was mourning in a way that morning outwardly there was a ton of protests happening and then on online they were people just calling out businesses left and right for their lack of participation in the community for their treatment of their own black employees and i think at that point it was it was like enough was enough so when i started black owned everything and it kind of organically grew it was important for me because I at the, at the time I was a part of so many different conversations in the fashion community on how we should handle this and how we should approach these businesses and get them onboarded to. And I think there are organizations that have done really well at that, like Aurora James's 15% Pledge or Lindsay and Sandrine's The Black Fashion Council. But with Black Owned Everything, it was important for me to create a positively charged space and not, and I think we were all creating positively charged spaces, but I didn't want to necessarily be known for calling out these businesses. I wanted to turn that energy inward and celebrate our creators, celebrate what we're actually doing. Because I thought that even if you take a percentage of that energy, you know, and turn it back into your community, it could go a lot further. And I hear some testimonies from these businesses like, 
employing seven people to then employing 50 people. And just that reach alone, you know, and like what that what that can really do for families, I think kind of goes a lot further. And not to say that any one is more important than the other, because I think that there's a lot of us young black girls, especially working in this industry, just trying to make a name for ourselves. And I think there's a lot of a lot of young women and men that just don't quite fit in and then don't they're not quite allowed it allotted the space to communicate their grievances, you know, in the workplace or their experiences in the workplace. And it still is this way. Like, you know, it's still, it's just not quite safe, but there's a lot of work that is being done and that still needs to be done in order to move this whole industry forward. We've seen a shift in the industry. I think that's a bit like unprecedented. And one of our models with Black on Everything is like for when the trend is over, you know, because I always wanted it to be. You always you, you never know how long these things are going to last. They become very like the happening. The inclusion is, the ha- you know, it becomes like more like, is it in right now or is it is this the real shift, you know, or is this just a trend for the, a, a year or two, you know? How much opportunity do you think there is by better platforming black creativity and enabling it to be, you know, appropriately commercialized for a global audience? I mean, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. I mean, it's a, it's a trillion dollar business. We're spending like one point, I think it's up to like $1.5 trillion annually. So of course there is a way or, you know, opportunity to benefit financially, but in the same breath, what are you giving back to that community? You know, what are you offering that community? Not just how are you platforming and positioning your business to to take from that community, but what are you then giving back, you know, and what are you offering it? How are you creating safe spaces, you know? Because we, I mean, culturally, we've made, you know, we've popularized so many things through song, through film, you know, whatever our creative outlets that now, you know, become drivers for, for other other communities to come and spend, you know, maybe that are spending a higher percentage in the space, you know. And the fact that I think we even still have to be having this conversation, you know, it's like it's kind of bizarre, but it's necessary. So so we just continue to to push forward. But again, I think more importantly, it's okay. what can you how can you benefit? But then what are you giving back? You know, how are you creating real space for these creators and how are you bringing them in to your, you know, into your your wheelhouse, you know, and like and really collaborating with them to crank out whether it's beautiful imagery or new products. What are your hopes for the future? I think, you know, generally, that many of these companies have benefited from whether it's rap culture or, you know, just imagery that we've practically created for them. We created so much marketing for these companies from, from you know, artists like Little Kim, you know, even up to her and BT Awards wearing her Prada bangs, you know, it's like we've created so much conversation, you know, for these brands. And I'm just hoping that there continues to be real sustainable change um, for them in the way that they shine light on our community. Just through the pandemic in general, I've my hope is that fashion um, as a whole have realized that we don't really need that much. I think that, you know, a lot of these businesses are really showing you what's what it is indeed possible. Taking someone like, let's say Telfar, for example, Telfar has created 
I'm sure must be a multi-million dollar business at this point with practically mainly one handbag design in different colors, but in three different shapes. He does clothing and some accessories too, but those bags are really driving that business. Watching someone like Brandon Blackwood, he had one design, the unsystematic racism bag that grew to be popular. And he was able to take that design and pivot it. And now he has 10 and 15 different styles and has, has taken in one year his business into a multi-million dollar handbag business. Companies like Apartment 202 or Kendall Miles, who's a shoe designer, or even uh, Chiari, she, they make like just a few really good products and then dive into that. Like, does it take like five different seasons in a year to create sustainable business? You know, does it take all of this excess in the industry do you have to have a, a, a one, a 1.5, a two, a 2.5, you know, of fashion seasons? And I feel like I'm just like, where are all of these clothes going? One of the bright lights of London Fashion Week, emerging designer Bethany Williams had started her fashion career having already asked herself some of those questions. I think for me, it was the better way of looking at things came before the fashion. So I studied my my BA in critical theory, which I, I think really gave me the kind of backbone to our kind of practice and looking at like systems designs. And, you know, like I was looking at other kind of art practices such as like Superflex, which are big kind of art practice of like freelancers that will like infiltrate multinational companies or government bodies and their tool is art and they'll like use art to kind of create social change for community projects. And I just thought it was like a really interesting way of viewing a system. And then I was kind of like, oh, could this be applied to kind of like a fashion system? So yeah, that kind of was integral for because each collection will create like a, a system of waste and a system of who we support and um, through the collections um, and through our commissions also. The tangible social good that is achieved by Bethany's approach to building a fashion business has led to her now consulting with major brands and guiding them in their own efforts to do less harm and more good. Bethany, can you tell me about how you have created a business where the designing, producing and selling of your collections actually achieves social good? We work with social manufacturing partners. We work with Making for Change, which is now based next to us <laughs> in our studio, which is a programme set up by the London College of Fashion, um, which started in Downview Prison and now has a secondary unit here in Poplar. And so when women are released, they have paid work on release or further their skills um, here and also for like local community. So we've been working with them for our manufacturing. And then we also work with a community called Manusa with our knitwear and San Patrignano in Italy for our um, woven textiles. So we'll connect social projects to waste streams. And um, so we've worked with the Xenia Foundation, Sezia, a yarn supplier, and then we work with sorting facilities here in the UK for like denim. Um, so we will connect waste streams to the social projects um, and we've, we've done yeah like working with for sportswear like Adidas's waste um, and then that'll be processed into new garments and then we also work with like grassroots organizations so with the collection we use the collection as a spotlight so we'll work with a 
grassroots organisation, um, which we've been working with, the Magpie Project, based in Newham, which supports women and children in temporary accommodation. It supports um, 80% of their families will be under no recourse to public funds, um, which is like an immigration status which stops you from accessing the welfare system. So in the UK, there's 100,000 children affected by about, by the legislation. And so the MyPi Project support families into getting suitable accommodation and then, you know, making sure they're safe, safe place to play. They do a, a lot. Um, but we'll kind of invite an artist in residence, like a poet in residence, filmmakers in, um, to run workshops with the families. And then we kind of tell the stories through, um, yeah, through the collection and kind of... Um, talk about the amazing work that they do and then we donate 20% of the proceeds from their collection back to the Magpie Project. So we've been working with them for three collections now and yeah, we also work on commissions also with galleries and public art and then we'll work with community projects through that also. There have now been three collections where through the Magpie organisation there have been a group of individuals that have been horribly affected by this legislation that you will then connect to artists that inspire you, that are part of your creative community. And then through that artistic interaction, that actually inspires the collection, which is then made by another organisation through which they give employment to people that have been recently released from prison. And then the proceeds of the collection are returned to the Magpie Project using materials that you've sourced from waste sources, be they major partners or other resources. Yeah, so we use waste or if we use virgin material, it will be have to be certified organic or regenerative. And then we also work with local smaller crafts projects. So we kind of try to consider the whole garment. So even, you know, like we work with um, a screen printing studio in Peckham, which use non-toxic inks and fixings. And then we also work with the London Greenwood, um, which is based in Stoke Newington. So they're like a woodwork facility that only work with fallen trees and they don't use electricity and they make our buttons. So we try and support like small crafts projects through kind of every element of the garment. What is luxury to you? Luxury is, you know, having a product that you don't feel guilty owning, I think. And, and you know, um, luxury for me is about, you know, beautiful craftsmanship and, you know, slowing down of the manufacturing project and, you know, working with artisans and like supporting kind of local community projects. So I think that's kind of how I see luxury. Like when I graduated like five five years ago or four years ago, I felt like what I was talking about, like bringing the kind of like aspect of environmentalism and like social welfare together. Like I didn't really feel that people understood it yet. I, I felt like, you know, there was still quite a way to go. And then I'd say over the last two years, it's really started to like pick up and I really feel you know like also with Covid and people having to spend more time at home and really having time to like process their like lifestyle and have have time to think about their like belief systems and their value systems more I feel like it's kind of really created a a bigger movement I do really feel like there's a shift in the younger generation 
and especially from when I'm going back into schools to teach, you know, like at RCA and um, LCF and CSM and then through our tutorials, you know, when I was studying, I was the only person like thinking of these practices on my course and when I'm going back in it's like 70% are like I'll have some kind of form of sustainability or thinking outside the box and yeah I just think it's really interesting to see this massive shift. How effective do you believe having more sustainably minded creative talent can be if they continue to be employed by a system that was built in a different era with leadership that often, in some cases, hasn't changed for decades? I think it's difficult because obviously it's great to have the creatives to bring in that shift. But I think you do need to be supported business-wise to actually be able to implement those changes. You need the creatives, but you also need the, the business to be supporting those decisions and and making that transformation. How much change do you think businesses like yours, art projects like yours can catalyze in the industry? I feel like it's about tangible change making, not just speaking about it. You know, I think like it's very important to be speaking about issues and raising voices. But I also think it's really important to be actually doing tangible change making through supply chain um, and through the kind of projects that we engage with, whether that's through funding or through like actual creating product. How accessible is that ecosystem of charities organizations, initiatives, that luxury brands that are inclined to do some tangible social good, as you say, can plug their operations into and in the process adopt better production methods? I think there's a lot of a way to go before we're there. But I I do think like the mindset of the consumer is changing. And that's, I think, really, really important because that's going to drive those larger like corporations to actually have to implement that and be held accountable. But yeah, I think we do have a way to go. But I think like people are becoming more and more aware to, to the issues that we're faced like socially and environmentally and I think it's kind of like the only path to kind of move forward. I do feel like with the younger generation that they're not like that they really are going to hold people accountable um, and we'll be asking the right questions. Now a note from our partner the CEO of Klarna Sebastian Simiotkowski who shares his insights generated by the payment company's 19 million active customers. I think right now there's a lot of focus on the, the Shopify's of the world, the kind of the platforms that are allowing smaller and bigger retailers to efficiently sell online. But there's another area which I call like the curation area, which is much more kind of unclear, like Instagram shopping versus this and like well, what's going to happen in all that space. And I sincerely believe that we will see more and more of consumers giving other consumers advice about products. I think that whole area, I mean, there's already been some of it online with reviews and stuff. I think it's just going to explode. And I think consumers will be paid for it. In the context of increasing concerns over the social and environmental impact of producing and consuming goods at such an alarming rate, some commentators believe that as we enter the age of the metaverse, which is a topic we're going to discuss later on in the series, the need for so many discretionary goods to actually exist physically is now defunct, and that shifting our consumption of the physical to the digital 
could help reduce the negative impact of the unsustainable levels of consumption that the luxury industry has partially engendered. It was a topic that Aaron and I had discussed. I think we are headed towards a Ready Player One, the movie-esque life over the next 20 years in a way that's kind of weird for culture and society because I'm a big fan of in real person engagement. But also from an environmental standpoint, I think it's super interesting once we get past the environmental impact of NFTs negatively on carbon, which I think is in the next six to eight months here, you'll see a solve for that with Ethereum too. But what I mean by the positive side is, you know, consumption in real life, packaging, shipping, all these things, which are super bad for the environment, mass vapid consumerism is bad for the environment. The fashion industry has been a, a well-known violator of this. I think in the future to allow people to have a kind of excessive lifestyle where they have mansions and unlimited amounts of sneakers, clothes, cars, a, a very lavish lifestyle, but in their virtual sense, maybe have a much smaller impact on the environment in their physical life. The unique signatures of non-fungible tokens or NFTs create a sense of distinct ownership, which was previously lacking in the digital sphere. Can you tell me your view on the potential of luxury digital products? I think we're at the early days of something really interesting. I think the people buying a JPEG of a tweet for you know millions of dollars is not what will continue, but I think there's a few interesting applications in the future. The use for in the metaverse, whether that's skins in video games, fashion in video games, or property or art that will live inside your virtual world, I think is a super interesting application. Obviously, it's been well documented that the majority of employees at Facebook are working on things like virtual reality and mixed reality. I'm super intrigued on where that will go in the future and super bullish on the positive impacts in the environment, the metaverse and NFTs and all these things can have in the digital world on, on allowing people to maybe consume less IRL. Then I think the other part that's interesting in the short term is not necessarily, again, the art side of NFTs and digital goods, but I think the ability to track ownership or the ability to use NFT as a token for a future purchase. The network will be doing something over the next few weeks where we're going to drop something with a well-known creative director and you can pre-purchase this item as an NFT and then later trade it in for the physical goods. I think it's a great pre-purchase system. People can intertrade those things with each other and then maybe by the time good actually comes out, the price will have traded up considerably. So it creates a really nice aftermarket. It creates a really nice chain of ownership. And it also gamifies the shopping experience. You know, other people are doing interesting things like the owner, whoever holds that NFT at the time when you want to call it forge this item, maybe it's other interesting benefits beyond just owning this digital good. The digital good is almost like a coupon or something you trade in for some in real life experience or product that is very special. To give us a better idea of NFTs and digitizing luxury art, I spoke to Victor Langlois, who is better known as Ferocious, one of the world's most famous crypto artists. He is the youngest artist ever to work with Christie's, where he recently held an auction during Pride Month. It was their second ever NFT auction. To date, he's generated over $20 million from his art, and he is one of the most successful and visible members of a growing community of crypto artists finding success in the NFT market. He's also launched a shoe collaboration with design studio Artifact with more than 600 pairs selling out in seven minutes, generating around $3.1 million in sales. Victor, can you tell me about your experience of the digital art market growing and how interest in your work has exploded? I was just in my grandparents' house in my bedroom and I would see other artists post their art on Twitter and they could make money selling prints and they had enough money to live on their own. And I idolized that. I 
I knew the internet was powerful, but I just didn't know how to get myself out there yet. But I was trying, and I kept trying and trying, and through those efforts of trying, I found the NFT space just by chance of selling a painting to a collector who knew about the NFT space and said, hey, I love your art, I want more, because I collect these things called NFTs, and I think your art is different. I'd love to collect some of that. That changed my life. I went from a little Twitter account that posted my feelings every day <laughs> and no one really cared to all of a sudden I had collectors. I was talking to people from all around the world. I was seeing people who came from TV, fashion, working on special effects for movies and all these older people with all this life experience and the NFT space was a great like equalizer because it was so new that no one knew nothing, but there's all these people from all around the world and I had access to just DM them and say, hey, what's up? Back in May, we reported on what we called the NFT gold rush, where there was a huge uptick in interest and stories in the press about individuals selling tweets and songs and many other NFTs. What did that do to your part of the market and what do you think that means for the long-term future of it? So many new people joined the space, so many new collectors that I've, you know, at first I kind of, everyone kind of knew all the collectors and occasionally a new one would come in <laughs> a week or so. But, you know, in May it was just new people all the time and it was beautiful to see, it was beautiful to go to the store and I overheard people talking about NFTs. I was on the news for the first time, seeing my art on the news. And with that, so many new artists joined the space. And I've seen the gnarliest art I've ever seen. For the future of the space, I don't know. I think it will eventually evolve into like some standard. I think they're so important that I think everyone eventually will just know about them and then they won't call them NFTs anymore because everything just will be an NFT. And I, I think that's really cool. What's your experience been of meeting your customers? Is there anything that you think unites them? Honestly, like I, <laughs> I thought they were all going to be really old and I don't know. <laughs> like I just look at the art world and I figured they'd be really old because I don't know, I've only seen movies where someone buying art is just old. No, they're all like young and do some cool techie thing and that's how they know about NFTs or someone told them about NFTs and they're just the kindest people. What excites you about its potential in the future and the role that digital art could play in culture? Well, before when I made digital art, I would make it and like try to copy a painting. Like I just did a still painting because I thought that's what like art had to be. It had to be like a still thing that you look at and that's it. And I would try to go outside the box as much as I could, like writing on my art and just making it, try to look as different as I could. But with the NFT space, I'm like, oh, art can move. You can interact with art. There's programmable art. You can program layers so that someone can change how your art looks and it's dynamic. Sound, I recently started adding sound to my art and I don't look at it as songs. I'm like, no, what does the painting sound like? <laughs> and I animate them now because I think it's a cool exaggeration of what my character would be doing. Um, I think the metaverse is cool. Augmented reality is cool. There's so much I probably don't even know about yet just because you can kind of do anything 
and figure out a way to attach an NFT to it, which I think is so rad. You said that you could speak forever about the programmability of the art. Could you give me more details about it and explain what it is and why it's so exciting? So programmable art is you can have a painting and cut it up into layers or make your own like path for it to go. So I can make a painting and connect it to the time of day. And maybe when it gets nighttime, my painting changes colors or my painting changes it to a whole other image or I give you access to the eyes. So you can change how the eyes look. You can change how the mouth moves. You can change whatever I let you change or even the sound of it. And I think that's so beautiful that you know, if I give you a canvas and it's on your wall, you can like touch it and break it. <laughs> but if you have an NFT, a dynamic NFT that I gave you, it's now you can, you know, express something else that I didn't show you at first. But now here's the other scene of this painting. And a painting doesn't have to be still. A painting can say like so, 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 so much more. And all my art is so darn expressive that... I am given endless ways to express how I feel, and it lives forever. Next week, we're talking about luxury service, or more specifically, how the luxury industry is getting increasingly personal with its customers. We'll discuss the new consumer attitudes driving change, and discover how technology is making the personalized experience once only available to the global elite, accessible to larger and larger groups of consumers, whilst also mapping their desires in previously unimaginable ways. In the meantime, make sure you're following Transforming Luxury wherever you get your podcasts. That way, you'll be guaranteed to get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. And don't forget to review this podcast and share your thoughts with us. A huge thank you to Serena, Aaron, Bethany and Victor for taking part. And of course, our partners, Klarna. That was Transforming Luxury. I'm Robin Mellory-Pratt. Thanks for listening. Thank you.